Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Mile Higher Podcast. This is episode 215. I'm your host, Josh. And if you're watching this on YouTube or Spotify, you can see I'm all alone up here. Although I'm not completely alone because Janelle is here with me this week. What up, people? Dude, I haven't been in this spot in. I know. mm, It feels a a little weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because this is the first episode back in the actual mile higher studio with Janelle. I did an episode last week uh, or recorded it last week, which was done from my basement. It was just super jank. Hey, how did I literally just put up a tapestry behind me? Oh yeah. Um, But I just wanted to get something up. You know, it's been a couple weeks that mile higher has been off, but I am very excited to be back. Obviously my co-host and wife Kendall is not back yet. And trying to think there's any updates with her. She's doing very well. She is at home currently with our daughter, just enjoying every moment of being a mother. And I'm not quite sure when she'll be returning to the podcast. Um, could be a couple weeks from now, could be a month from now, or two months from now. I'm really not sure. I'm just kind of letting her take her time and coming back. And as many of you know, she also has a YouTube channel that she does, as well as a po- another podcast that she does as well. So she's still on maternity leave, and I'm just going to let her you know, come back when she's ready. But in the meantime... I will be here, Janelle will be here, and we will be back posting weekly from here on out. Mm -hmm. And today we are covering a true crime case about two individuals, Michael Clark and Carol Lubon. And this case is a very, very frustrating case because it's one that took way too long to solve. And there's just lots of sort of twists to it, which are really kind of weird, but um, it's definitely a very tragic case at that but we're going to jump into that here in just a second before we do i want to thank our sponsors for today we've got hellofresh quip dipsy and stitch fix and also um i'm actually wearing our mile higher villas i think what we're calling mm-hmm. this shirt uh this merch design we just restocked all sizes on milehiremerch.com so if you've been waiting for a merch item to come back in stock with your size go check the site now because we've restocked all sizes and they're going quickly. So if you want something, definitely go take a look right now and see if your size is in stock. It should be. But yeah, check out MileHardMerch.com if you haven't already. Thanks to everybody who has supported the merch store. It's been super, super successful because of you guys. So we really appreciate it. You know, we have like a full team dedicated to uh, the merch store now. So, um, but yeah, other than that, life has been been good it's been definitely an adjustment coming back to work and podcasting and you know doing lights out again and sort of just trying to find my flow going forward into the future as a podcaster and especially somebody who works in in true crime because it's just i really can't describe how being becoming a parent really changes you and i don't think anybody you know there's i think that's pretty much how everybody feels when they have a child is like you can prepare all you want for it. You can try to like mentally prepare for it. But then once your child's here, you're like, wow, there is absolutely nothing that could have prepared you for this. And it's just a major adjustment to your life and in a good way. And it's just trying to figure out how you work, you know, put your work back together and get your schedules all all together. So, so bear with us, you know, we're trying to iron out some of the kinks and everything and uh, get everything back on schedule. But um, it's been an absolutely amazing experience and, you know, I'll talk more about it when Kendall comes back because I know we have some more thoughts and just some overall 
you know, and talk a little bit about our experience and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a very special and profound experience that I will never forget. But with that being said, let's go ahead and just jump right into this case. We're going to begin by talking about Carol Jean Meyer, who is the victim in this case, and we're going to take a look at her background. So Carol Jean Meyer was born on October 28, 1954 in Torrance, California to her parents, Melba and Milton. Carol had an older sister named Gail and a younger sister named Terry, and she was very close with both of them. According to her sister, Carol was a really fun-loving girl who had a lot of friends, just well-liked by everybody. And as a teenager, she attended North High School in Torrance, and that's where she met a boy who was about a year or so older than her. And his name was Michael, or he went by Mike Lubon. She and Michael got close, and they eventually started dating Michael got along really well with Carol's tight-knit family. That's like one thing that's just makes this case even harder later on is just everybody in Carol's family absolutely loved Michael. But then Carol got pregnant with Michael's child in 1971. She was only about 16 or 17 years old at the time. But she handled that major life change with Grace and she was committed to being a mother. And she eventually gave birth to her son, Michael Jr., Carol and Michael were the classic tale of high school sweethearts. They got married shortly after she graduated from high school in 1972. Carol's father, Milton, had a house painting business called Pioneer Painting, and he treated Michael like a son. He even gave him a job there after he graduated from high school. Three and a half years later, after she had Michael Jr., she and Michael had another baby, a baby girl named Brandy. And for a while, married life seemed like it you know, was something that they really enjoyed and suited the couple. Carol had a close relationship with her parents, and she talked to her mom almost every single day. And at one point, the couple actually lived with Carol's parents. But when they weren't living there, they always lived within at least three miles of her parents' house. Just really a tight-knit family. In 1980, Carol went back to school to study architecture at El Camino College in Torrance. And when it came to her studies, Carol was a great student, and she actually made the dean's list. Her graduation date was set for the summer of 1981. At the time, her family needed extra money, so she also started working as a part-time assistant at the Triple Check Tax Preparation Service. So not only was Carol a working mother, but she was also juggling work and school on top of that. And like I mentioned before, Carol became a mother and a wife at a really young age. By 1981, she was just 26 years old, and she'd lived that life for the last 10 years. So... When you, you know, sort of start such an adult life that young, it's, it's very normal for somebody to, you know, hit their mid-20s and start thinking about all of the experiences that, you know, if I hadn't been married, I hadn't had a child, what were the things that I would have done? And Carol really started sort of thinking about and missing some of those experiences and, you know, wondering if she could go out and potentially experience those now. Michael and the kids was the only life that she'd ever known, and her adolescence was cut short pretty quickly. And as the years went on, she started outgrowing her relationship with Michael, which again, with any sort of high school sweetheart relationship, there's always a possibility that you grow apart. I mean, when you get married really young, there's a lot that changes. And sometimes, you know, like Kendall and myself, we, we were met in high school and luckily, you know, we kind of grew together and we're just so similar that, you know, as time has gone on, you know, we've been together for 12 years that it just never, you know, we never, never tore us apart or we went different directions, but in a lot of other relationships, it's possible for people to realize, you know, I may not actually want to be with this person or, you know, I actually am coming into who I am as an adult and maybe there's somebody else better suited for me. 
So one day in 1980, Carol met a guy named Mark Turpin in one of her college classes. They started talking more and more, and they eventually became good friends. But six months after they met, that friendship turned into a romantic affair. According to Mark, Carol told him that she was actually recently separated from her husband. They just lived in the same house. And she would talk to Mark about her kids a lot. He saw that she clearly loved them very much. She and Michael had already separated twice, and both times Michael left the house while Carol stayed home with the kids. The first separation happened after Michael found out that Carol had a fling with one of their old high school classmates. When he discovered the affair, he was so angry that he actually punched their bathroom mirror. That punch shattered the mirror and injured Michael's hand. Carol actually wasn't home at the time, but Michael wanted her to come back and see it herself. It was sort of his way of showing her just how angry he was about the affair she was having. Michael moved out of the house for a bit after that incident, but eventually he and Carol made up and he moved back into the family home. According to their son, Michael Jr., he never heard his parents argue, but he did say that his dad had a temper with a long fuse. So he didn't blow up easily, but when he did, it was explosive like a powder keg. But Carol still maintained a social life of her own. In her free time, she liked to go dancing at the Red Onion Restaurant in Redondo Beach. She also had her own car, a 1979 Red Audi Fox, with custom license plates that said, CJ's Fox. The couple had some neighbors, a married couple named Jerry and Jeanette Hurst, that saw Carol almost every day, and they'd hang out together on the weekends. Jeanette said that Carol sometimes called Michael her quote-unquote third child. It seemed to her like Carol was starting to get tired of being married to him. Carol's sister at one point or another also said that Carol told her that she felt like she was raising three kids. So Carol clearly thought that her husband might not have been super mature or responsible, but one thing that was really clear to the hearse was that Carol absolutely loved her children and major emphasis on love her children because that's going to be very important here later on. They said that she had always been an amazing mother. They also remember that around that time, Carol was unhappy with how small the house was that they lived in. It was a two-bedroom, one-bathroom home and only 600 or 700 square feet, so pretty cramped for a family of four. Carol definitely wanted to move, but Michael was happy with the house, and he wanted to stay. At the time, Carol's mother Melba knew that her daughter and Michael were having some marital problems, and she thought it all stemmed from the fact that Carol wanted to sell their house, but Michael didn't. She also didn't notice Carol acting strangely or anything like that during 1981, and there were really no signs that Carol was planning on leaving her family anytime soon. In fact, she was really looking forward to her sister Terry's wedding. On March 28, 1981, Melba went to lunch with Carol to help plan the wedding shower. It was set for the first week of May, so it was right around the corner. The next night, Melba and Milton had everyone over for a family dinner. It seemed like Carol and Michael weren't getting along very well, and overall the vibe was just really tense between the two of them. Other than that, though, Carol didn't say or do anything weird at dinner, and again there was no mention of her leaving or anything like that. While they were leaving, though, Carol told Michael to sit in the back seat for the ride home. Melba talked to her the next day on the phone, but that night was the last time she ever saw Carol in person. So this is where our story really begins, is on the night of March 30th, 1981. And that night would set off a mystery that lasted for the next three decades. Before we get into what happened on that night, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So on March 30th, 1981, from 9 to 10.30 p.m., Michael Jr. was laying in his room listening to music. His door was still open and he could see into the hallway from his bed. 
At one point, he saw his mother quickly walk out of her bedroom and shut the door behind her. It looked like she was pretty upset. She then walked down the hall, and Michael Jr. heard a thud that sounded like a door slamming, and the next day his mother was gone. At work that day, Michael broke the news to Milton that Carol had left the house. Milton was obviously very worried about his daughter, and he told his wife about Carol's disappearance that afternoon. When Michael talked to Melba, she told her that he and Carol had gotten into a fight. She went to take a bath, and he went to bed. But when he woke up the next morning, Carol was gone. Melba was beyond worried and confused. She knew that her daughter was a responsible girl who loved her kids more than anything else in the world. So there's just no way that Carol would ever abandon them. She had separated from Michael before, but she'd always stayed in the house with the kids. Melba knew that Carol wanted up and leave just because she was mad at her husband. Plus, there were so many exciting things going on in her future. She was about to finish school at El Camino College that summer, and she wouldn't have missed her sister's wedding for the world. Michael said that in the days after his wife's disappearance, he tried looking for her at El Camino College, but she never turned up. On April 5th, Melba found Carol's car, the Audi Fox. It had been abandoned at the Red Onion restaurant parking lot, and one employee at the Red Onion reported that he had seen the car sitting there for a week as there was dust collected on it. But she hadn't taken any clothes, any money, or any of her personal belongings from the house. And now she didn't have a car. So, just by looking at all of that, it doesn't really seem like she was planning to run off. I mean, who runs off without any of those things? And she never came back to pick up her last two paychecks from her job. So she really wouldn't have any money on her either. On April 7th, one week after Carol disappeared, Michael went down to Torrance Police Department and filed a missing persons report on Carol. Now, Michael's version of her disappearance changes multiple times throughout the story, so the sequence of events changes slightly with each time he retells his last time seeing her. The details that change might not seem super significant, but they really do matter in this investigation. When he first filed the missing persons report, he told the police that he had seen Carol at 10 p.m. on the night of the 30th. When he woke up a few hours later at 4.45 a.m., Carol was gone. A detective interviewed Michael again on April 15th, According to him, he'd actually gotten 15 weird phone calls to the house since Carol's disappearance, and each time Michael picked up, the caller wouldn't speak, and they'd just hang up after several seconds. He also said that on April 10th, he took the kids to an amusement park, and when they got back, some things had been tampered with inside the house while they were out. Some of their mail had been moved around. Michael had also placed a piece of tape over his dresser. That way, if anyone opened it, the tape would break. He told the police that he came home that day and found the tape broken meaning someone had been inside the house. He also gave the detective some more details on what happened on the night of Carol's disappearance. He said that Carol had been pushing pretty hard for them to sell the house, and that night she came to him and gave him the paperwork to put the house on the market. The two of them then got into an argument, and then according to Michael, Carol told him, you can just have the house, I don't want any part of it, and she informed him that she didn't want anything to do with him. Then she took a shower and went to bed. And Michael said that when he woke up at 4.30 a.m., Carol was gone. The next time Michael was interviewed was about two weeks later on April 29th. And during that interview, Michael told the same detective that someone had been in the house and taken some money on April 10th. Apparently, Michael and Carol had kept some money stashed in the house in places only they knew about. He told the detective that there was $100 that they kept under the butter dish in the fridge. But when he went back to check the spot, there was only $40 left there. Later on, their neighbor Jerry Hurst said he was actually working on his yard all day on the 10th. And that was the day of all these thefts supposedly took place. 
but he said that he didn't see Carol or anyone else go into the Luban's house while Michael was out. The implication Michael was hinting at in all these stories is obviously that Carol was coming back to grab things while the family was out, which he was hoping would lead investigators to believe that Carol disappeared on her own free will. There's some really interesting things to note with these stories, though. Probably one of the most obvious is the fact that only $60 was missing from the house, which is not nearly enough money to run off and start your own life, especially when you consider the two unclaimed paychecks Carol had. Also, if there's $100, why wouldn't you take all of the $100? Why would you leave change? Why would she leave $40 and only take $60? Not that it makes that much of a difference, but still, the principle is just weird. I'm just so surprised that with these details that he's giving that investigators aren't just like, dude, we don't believe this at all. This makes no sense. Like, what do you mean? Nobody would do that. I know. I mean, especially the fact that Carol didn't take any of her personal belongings. I mean, I think any detective would be like, yeah, that's weird. If if somebody's going to disappear on their own free will, they're 100% going to take at least some clothes, right? Yeah. Like we've seen cases where people leave behind wallets and personal items like cell phones and things like that. But like, clothes like not even none of her clothes are missing Mm -hmm. and then you know why abandon the car at the red onion restaurant too that's kind of odd and not bother getting her paycheck Mm -hmm. i would want my paycheck yeah you would think if you're gonna go start your own life you need as much money as you can get so very very bizarre i think the one thing to note here though that's important is that michael when you listen to the family and just the way that michael carries himself he was very very manipulative about all of these details like he really made the family believe that this was possible and that the only other person that would know where the money would be stashed would be carol and the fact that there was 40 dollars left was definitely a move that carol would do and so he really really did convince the family and pretty much everybody around him that carol definitely left on her own accord and you know here's the reasons why because especially with leaving behind the 40 dollars Carol was a very kind and giving person, so if she went back to grab money from the house, she would have left behind some change for Michael and the kids. She would never want to like leave them high and dry. But again, it's only a hundred dollars, yeah. so mm, you know I don't know how believable that is. But at the time, everybody believed that that was Carol doing that, and somehow everything that Michael said in those interviews was good enough for that detective on the case. And in June of that year, he set the case on inactive status. In his final report, he stated that there was no foul play in Carol's disappearance. He concluded that Carol likely left the house because of divorce problems. Which is like... Stupid. Oh, man, that's just bad police work, honestly. Like, it's just lack of experience, I'd say, in disappearance cases. Because it's like, there are not that many cases out there where women disappear with kids on their own accord. Like, if you were to pull statistics on that, I'm sure it'd be a very, very low percentage of women that just leave their family and kids and start a new life and the fact that this detective just sort of believed michael's story is is definitely very concerning and carol's mother melba definitely wasn't really buying what the police were were saying so she actually wanted to get a private investigator to help find her daughter she figured that michael would want to help find his missing wife but when she asked him to chip in for money for the pi he said he didn't want to so because the case went into an inactive status it went cold And for years, there's just no activity on it at all. And as the years went on, whenever Michael Jr. would bring up his mom, his dad would quickly change the subject. Michael Jr. remembered that his dad never brought up Carol or reminisced on memories of her. It seemed like he didn't grieve her at all. 
In February of 1982, about a year after Carol's disappearance, Michael met a woman named Carrie, and they eventually started dating and moved in together in December of that year. Three years after Carol went missing, Michael divorced her in absentia, but he still stayed close with everyone from Carol's family. They all accepted the idea that Michael had nothing to do with Carol's disappearance. It just seemed like he would never do anything to hurt her. And when Milton retired, Michael was actually the one who took over the family painting business. Sometimes on holidays and on important birthdays, her family would get mysterious calls. They'd pick up the phone and hear nothing but silence on the other end. Her family figured that it was Carol calling. So they'd say things like, we love you and miss you, Carol. Please come home. And then the caller would hang up. I, I, I guess I understand in their situation, you know, you're holding on to hope that she's out there and that she really is, you know, just living a whole new life. And maybe that's her way of sort of letting her family know that she's out there and she's okay. But I mean, it seems more likely that whoever made Carol disappear is the actual caller. Her family believed that Carol was out there, you know, somewhere just looking for a better life. And to live the life that she dreamed of, she needed to leave her old one behind completely. Michael changed his name from Michael Lubon to Michael Lubon Clark in 1987. We're not sure exactly where the Clark bit came from, but the name change might have been his way of distancing himself from his old life. Not suspicious at all. That same year, an agency outside of California requested Carol's dental records from the Torrance Police Department, and this might have been because they were trying to identify a Jane Doe with similar physical features. When a sergeant at the police department got that request, he checked the records and saw that Carol was still listed as missing, which got him interested and he decided to do a full reinvestigation. So Carol's case was officially reopened in 1987, and the sergeant checked with the Social Security Administration, and they confirmed that there hadn't been any activity to her Social Security number. As we all know, it's pretty hard to go about your life without a Social Security number. You need one to do pretty much anything, like get a job, apply for a loan, get government benefits, and stuff like that. So there's a pretty good chance Carol would have needed to use her Social Security number at some point. And after reviewing all of this information, the sergeant couldn't find any evidence that pointed to Carol being alive still. On February 26, 1987, that sergeant interviewed Michael again. And he told him that before Carol disappeared, she hadn't been acting like herself. She was apparently more agitated and angry. He also made a comment about Carol wanting to spend time with younger people ever since she went to college. And Michael told the detective that two days before she disappeared, she actually hit their son, Michael Jr., it was something that Carol had apparently never done before, and it left Michael Jr. with a scratch on his face. According to Michael, Carol just didn't care about what had happened. This was obviously something Carol would have never done, and she was a great mother who never would have laid a hand on her child. Not only that, but Michael Jr. later testified that he was absolutely certain that his mother never hit him or left any scratch on him. Then Michael repeated that he and Carol had argued about selling their house the night before she disappeared. He said that he was afraid that if he agreed to sell the house, Carol would have divorced him. But he said that they both went to bed that night, and then at 5.30 a.m. in the morning, Carol got out of bed and said that she was going to the bathroom. But then he heard a car engine start, and he knew that Carol was driving away from the house. I feel like certain details like that are stupid. Like, if you think about, let's say you're sleeping next to Kendall, and it's 5 in the morning, and she gets up, are you going to be like, where are you going? She's like, oh, I'm going to the bathroom. Like, most people don't need to... Announce where you're Annou going. Exactly. Especially like, it's almost like he's over-explaining himself. Like, if John gets up, I'm not like, where are you going? And maybe if he's right. gone for 15 minutes, I'm like, oh, where is he? But just right away and be like, oh, I'm going to the bathroom. Oh, okay. Like, I don't know. It just seems like he's over-explaining. 
Yeah, it does seem like he's over-explaining. Like he's trying to make it make sense, but yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But this change in his story was huge compared to the version he last told the police. Before Michael had woken up at 4 a.m., Carol was already gone in his previous version. But now he was basically saying that he had talked to Carol right before she left. If your wife went missing and abandoned your family for years, you would think that you would clearly remember the last time you saw her and give those details to the police. But Michael didn't do that. Anyway, Michael also told the sergeant that two weeks after Carol disappeared, someone came into the house and stole $60, two pictures of the kids, and six or seven changes of Carol's clothes. Hmm. Michael was interviewed again on May 6th, and during that interview, he told the sergeant that Carol had a fling with one of their classmates from high school. Even though the case was reopened, there wasn't a lot more activity after 1987. Michael continued living his life, and he remarried his new girlfriend, Carrie, in 1988. Carol's family was really accepting of her, and they all came to the wedding, actually. The couple had two sons together and divorced after 20 years of marriage. Michael Jr. says that his dad talked about his stepmom constantly after she left him. He would never mention Carol. But once he and Carrie split, Carrie was all he'd talk about. And as the years went on, there was no sign of Carol anywhere. Nobody ever heard from her, not her family, not her friends, not even her own two children that she loved so dearly. In 1996, another detective was assigned to Carol's case. He went over the files and called up Michael again. And this time he asked Michael directly if he had killed Carol. Of course, Michael said no. By that point, Michael was no longer living in the house he once shared with Carol. The detective did a search of the property's backyard, but he didn't find anything. A reporter for the Daily Breeze did a story on Carol the next year. It was part of a series on unsolved cases. As part of his investigation, he interviewed Michael. And this is where Michael's story changes yet again. Michael said that when he woke up that morning around 4 or 5, Carol was not in bed and he had heard the garage door open. He said she didn't take anything with her. But sometime after that, someone had taken some of her clothes and went through their mail. Then sometime around late 2002 or early 2003, another detective started working on Carol's cold case. He interviewed Carol's parents, sisters, and her son. He also conducted 10 hours worth of interviews with Michael. In one interview, the detective asked Mike about all those traps he set around the house after Carol disappeared, but Michael somehow suddenly couldn't remember setting any traps like the paper in the door or the tape over the drawer. In another interview, Michael said that he and Carol started to talk about selling the house around 8 p.m. on the 30th. Then, at around 11.30 p.m. to 12 a.m., they started to argue. And this is when Carol told Michael, quote-unquote, you make my skin crawl. According to Michael, this wasn't one of their biggest arguments. He said the biggest was when he found out she was having an affair with a high school classmate. The detective told Michael that the department has gotten cases where the husband finds out his wife is cheating on him and gets so mad that he kills her. And Michael responded with, It had nothing to do with that. In another interview, the detective told Michael that he thought he killed Carol. He asked Michael to turn himself in and admit to what he had done. And Michael replied, I can't admit to that. Which if you go back to his previous statement, he said it had nothing to do with that. What is that it? That's such a weird thing to say when somebody accuses you or says, you know, hey, this is typically what happens when a husband finds out his wife is cheating and he gets mad and kills her. And he responds, it had nothing to do with that. So that obviously set off alarm bells for the detective. But after this next round of interviews with the detective, he did ask for a few days to get his affairs in order. And after that, he would come back and cooperate with the detective. 
So on November 2nd, 2003, Michael talked to the detective again. He said that he had gotten his affairs in order and figured that he was about to get arrested, but he also announced that he wasn't going to say anything. But that day, no arrests were made. About 10 more years passed, and the whole family more or less believed Michael when he told them that Carol had just up and left that night. But they still wished that she'd finally come home one day. And they couldn't imagine Michael having anything to do with Carol's disappearance. That's why they were shocked when they heard that Michael was arrested on April 13, 2011 for the murder of his wife, Carol Lubon. As the investigators prepared for the trial, they did some more investigating. They wanted to take one last shot at seeing whether or not Carol was actually alive. And I believe they actually tried to do a plea deal with him where he'd plea guilty to voluntary manslaughter, I believe was a charge, and Michael just denied that and said he was not guilty. And so they went to trial. In 2011, a detective working on the case created a Facebook page as well as many other social media accounts for Carol. That way, if Carol was still alive, she would see that people were still out there looking for her. And also, you know, give people a way who had seen Carol or talked to Carol a way to know that she was missing in the first place. She would also see that her husband had been arrested and charged with her murder. In doing this Facebook page, the investigators were able to have an age progression of Carol created and posted on all the social media pages. But from the looks of it, Unfortunately, Carol was no longer alive because nobody ever contacted the police department and reported speaking or seeing Carol anywhere. So that leads us to Michael's trial, which began in August of 2011. And before we get into that, we're going to take our last break. We'll be right back. So Michael Lubon Clark's trial began in August of 2011. As he walked into court, he actually smiled and winked at Melba to reassure her. He also testified in his own defense. When he was on the stand, Michael started to tell the story of his marriage to Carol. Early on in their marriage, he found out that Carol was having an affair with an old high school classmate. According to Michael, Carol left a note for him to find, and that's how he found out that she was cheating. He told the court about how he had smashed his hand in the mirror out of anger, and then he started describing the night Carol went missing. Ronald Reagan had actually been shot the day Carol disappeared, and Michael said that when he got home around 7 p.m. that evening, Carol was on the phone with her mom, and she sounded really upset. She later explained to Michael that she was upset about the way people at the school were reacting to the shooting. Eventually, Carol came into the bedroom and handed him the paperwork to sell the house. Michael asked her if she had a plan for where they'd go and what they'd do after they sold it. Carol told him that she didn't have a plan, but she thought that they could figure it out later. But Michael didn't like that answer. He said he wouldn't sign any papers until they came up with a new plan. This argument apparently lasted for a few hours, but it was actually broken up into chunks. So they'd argue for like 10 or 15 minutes and then do other things like watch TV or move around the house. And then they'd start arguing again in elevated voices. According to Michael, though, they didn't scream or yell at each other. Later on that night, Michael took a shower and went to bed. At one point, Carol came into the bedroom with paperwork again and asked him to sign it. According to Michael, she shoved the papers in his face. Michael still said no and Carol went to take a bath. He got up shortly after that and went to use the bathroom. While they were both in the bathroom, she brought up the paperwork again, and he told her he wouldn't sign it. Michael then went to leave the bathroom, and as he walked out, Carol told him, You make my skin crawl. And he went to bed after that. But for whatever reason, he woke up at 4.30 a.m. that morning, and Carol wasn't in bed with him. And when he looked around the house, she was nowhere to be found. Michael checked outside of the house as well, and that's when he claimed the garage door was up, and he saw taillights driving away from the house. He apparently didn't look for his wife because he figured that she'd be home soon, 
To him, it seemed like Carol wanted to get out of the house for a little bit because she didn't get her way. It was only after Melba found the car that Michael filed a missing persons report. He told the court that about 10 or 11 days after Carol went missing, he took his two kids to an amusement park, but he made sure to set some traps before he left the house. For the first trap, he slid a piece of paper in the front door. That way, if anyone opened it, the paper would fall. Then he sprinkled baby powder on the floor, so if anyone stepped on it, he could see their footprints. He also placed a piece of tape over Carol's dresser, so he'd know if anyone opened it. Convenient how he's just now adding the stupid baby powder part. Right. I'm like, dude, you suck at lying. If you're going to lie, at least be good at it. Shit is so annoying. It's like, it's just weird that he's setting traps for his own wife. I know. It's like, he's like, like you said, he's overcompensating by trying to create all these elaborate, you know, details of how hard he tried to, you know, prove that it was her coming back into the house and that she really left on her own accord. But it's just a bizarre thing that nobody would ever do mm-hmm. if, if their wife actually just left on their own accord. They'd be out there looking for their wife, trying to get, making pleas to the public, trying right. to, you know, get her to come home in any way, shape, or form, not setting traps at the house for her. That's just so bizarre. According to Michael, when he came back home, all the traps had been disturbed. Plus, someone had taken some money, some of Carol's clothes, and pictures of the kids. They'd also gone through the mail. Michael told the court that he didn't kill Carol. He said that he had nothing to do with her disappearance, but he also said that Carol wouldn't leave her children voluntarily. The jury didn't buy any of Michael's story, and they didn't take very long to deliberate, only four hours, and they convicted him of second-degree murder. But the truth, or at least parts of the truth, wouldn't come out until sentencing time. On December 14, 2012, Michael had actually written a letter to Carol's mother, Melba. The prosecution read out that letter at a sentencing hearing on January 7, 2013. Michael started the letter off with, I want to thank you for being so good to us over the years. And then came the truth. Michael confessed that he was the one that killed Carol. He wrote, Carol didn't run away. It's when she came back the trouble started. According to him, that night, he and Carol did argue about selling the house and she did leave. But she came back that night around 1.30 a.m. And that's when she told Michael that she was going to take another man to her sister's wedding. She didn't outright say she was having an affair, but Michael definitely got the message loud and clear. And all that anger started to rise up inside of him. He was very clearly upset with Carol and what she had told him. Carol tried consoling Michael and telling him that he'd find someone better for him. But that did nothing to stop his incredible anger. And at one point she tried reaching out to touch him to comfort him. And that's when Michael said he shoved her away from him. And when he did that, Carol fell backward and hit her head on a heavy coffee table. Instantly, Michael realized what had happened. Carol was dead. Then Michael panicked. He hid Carol's body in the garage behind a roll of carpeting. He then took her car and left it sitting at the Red Onion parking lot. Later on, Michael claimed that he put Carol's body in the back of his car and drove it out to the Oceanside. Later on, Michael claimed he put Carol's body in the back of his car and drove it out to the Oceanside. More specifically, he said he took the body out to Point Vicente in Rancho Palos Verdes near the lighthouse there. He tied Carol's body to a heavy cinder block. After he put on flippers and a wetsuit, he loaded her body up onto a raft. Michael then paddled about 200 to 500 yards past the kelp line and dumped Carol's body into the ocean. Once investigators had time to process Michael's confession, they had him submit to some polygraph tests. They wanted to confirm that Michael was telling the truth but the results were inconclusive. 
but they told Michael that he had failed the test. After they interrogated Michael some more, he changed the story yet again. This time, he told investigators that he didn't push Carol, he actually punched her in the head. But regardless, it's clear that Michael thought she had died. The investigators kept telling Michael to tell the full truth, as they didn't believe a single punch could have killed her, and the story wasn't adding up completely. But at that January sentencing hearing, Michael finally admitted the truth in court, that he killed Carol, and he insisted that it was an accident. He told the court that he'd take the investigators to the spot where he dumped Carol's body. That might have been a ploy to get a lighter sentence. Michael's son even testified at the sentencing and asked the judge to show his father leniency. He said that he had already lost one parent and he couldn't stand to lose another. He told the judge that it would be hard to see the world change without him. But that day, the judge sentenced Michael to 15 years to life in prison. The investigators, though, were still on a mission to bring Carol's remains home, and they brought Michael along too. So they all went out on a boat together to search the ocean around Point Vicente for Carol's body. They also brought a dive team to look for sunken remains. And after a long, exhausting day of searching, they came back empty-handed. And it was later determined through a polygraph that Michael was lying about where he got rid of the body. He admitted that he'd actually buried Carol's remains at an undisclosed location. After that, he passed a polygraph. But since the date Carol died, there had been construction at the site. The investigators didn't find a body when they searched the location that Michael gave them. And to this day, sadly, Carol's body has never been found. The family still doesn't have the form of closure that they deserve. Carol would be 67 years old today. Her father, Milton, died years before Michael's arrest, and he never got to find out what happened to his beloved daughter. Michael Jr. still loves his father, but he's found it hard to reconcile that love with the fact that his father did kill his mother. Michael appealed his conviction shortly after his sentencing. He argued that he should have been charged with voluntary manslaughter instead of second-degree murder because there wasn't enough evidence that he acted with malice in Carol's murder. But the judge disagreed, and he upheld Michael's second-degree murder conviction. He also dismissed the appeal with prejudice. That means Michael can't try to file an appeal again. Michael is currently serving out his sentence at Ironwood State Prison in Blythe, California. Carol's family misses her every day, and they hope that one day, Carol's remains will be found. That way they can get some of the answer they've waited decades for, and then they'll finally be able to bring Carol home and put her to rest. Super frustrating, man. It's just... So unnecessary. This guy's an idiot. Ugh. Just tormenting this poor family. Yeah. When he could have just came out from the very beginning and admitted to all of it. And, I mean, he could have just pled guilty, got the voluntary manslaughter charge that he wanted in the first place, but instead he decided, thought he was smarter than everybody and he could lie and get himself. I think he really thought he was going to get himself off. Yeah, but then he's the one that came clean at the end. Well, kind of. Yeah, I mean, he admitted to it and then, you know, Still lied lying. about where the body is. Still lying. Like, dude. I, I think this whole idea that this was like an accident gone wrong is just is a lie yeah, too. Totally. I, I feel like he totally killed her because he got yeah. mad and he found out that she was ultimate, you know, the whole thing with the house I feel like was also like, I'm going to divorce you and like, we're done. Mm-hmm. And that just sent him over the edge. And I mean, we don't even know what he actually did to her. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like the the punch to the face or the especially the push and she hit her head on a coffee table. I mean, that generally wouldn't be a killing blow for anybody. To me, I feel like it was probably much more brutal than that. And just, he's never wanted to admit it. Yeah. This is completely speculative, but it makes me wonder if the reason he gave those two locations is because maybe parts of her body are in both of those locations. I don't know. 
It'd be a lot of work, I feel like. True. Especially like getting in a little boat and yeah, paddling. Right. Like, why and would people he... would see that, I feel like, if you were going to do that. I feel like that was just a, you know, a diversion. Yeah. If I don't, I don't think he, I, I think he probably buried her somewhere and he knows exactly where she is, but he's just trying to act like, oh yeah, you know, he keeps trying to pick these, because of course it goes from the bottom of the ocean to now she's buried under a former construction site. But right? like, why wouldn't you just keep it at the bottom of the ocean and keep it as that? Yeah, because I mean, fucking ocean. Like, yeah. it's very. You could have said that, and then it'd be right. believable, right? Because you're not going to search the whole ocean, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's clear, clearly something wrong with Michael. I mean, yeah, he's a he's clearly a pathological liar. He doesn't even know what what is the reality at this point. And it's just crazy because, like, during the actual trial, the prosecutor's like going after him for, you know, have you ever told a lie? about something serious in his life and he's like i don't think so like he's just like blatantly lying in court and yeah. honestly i thought the prosecutor did a really good job there's uh there's some clips of the trial like there's i think there's like a dayline on this and they have some clips from the trial in there yeah. and just seeing like how like calm and like not bothered by the fact that he's on trial for murder michael is yeah and being asked these questions and he's just so like it's those types of people that are the most dangerous, in my opinion. The ones that just like don't have the ability to show empathy at all, and they're just like, mm, I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't have anything to do with this. I'm innocent, and just when in the back of his head, he knows that exactly what happened to her, and he put his family through thirty years of just pain and like torture of not knowing what you know, thinking that their mother and daughter is out there living her life and. Yeah. My guess was that Michael is the one who's making those phone calls, clearly. Oh, yeah. He would call them from a payphone or something and just be silent and make them think that it was Carol and the other. I mean, that's just that's just so messed up. Mm-hmm. It's so hard because it's like to the family, though, he was so manipulative that they weren't even happy with the verdict at the end, which was interesting. Like I was listening to some of the um, prosecutors and, and detectives that were involved in the trial and they were like, this was a really bizarre case. Most of the times when we come out of a, a trial like this where the defendant is found guilty, gets a life sentence, like the, you know, the, uh, the victim's family is like hugging us and super happy that this, you know, justice was served. But in this case, they were like upset. It was like a totally different uh, scenario because they, they loved Michael and to all accounts from his family, he's a great guy. Like there's no reason to believe that he was this monster. And, Oh, these cases are just always the hardest because it's just in the end, you know, Michael Jr. and Brandy, they lost both parents and they have to always think about the fact that their father, you know, murdered their mother. It's just, it's horrible. It's a very tragic, tragic case. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Let us know your thoughts in the comments on YouTube if you're watching there, or watching on Spotify, listen on social media at Pod. Uh, we're also on TikTok as well now. So if you haven't followed us over there, go check us out. But yeah, very, very sad case. And, you know, my heart goes out to the the family of of Carol and Michael Jr. and Brandy. I mean, it's just got to be so hard to, to go on with life knowing all of this. But I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Malhar Podcast. And I will see you next week. And until then, keep taking your mind. Malhar.